This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, July 31st, 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. Limiting government means expanding the sphere of the individual. And given recent scandals, the NSA and the IRS, the struggle for liberty most definitely continues. Last night at Cato University, Kentucky's junior Senator Rand Paul addressed the crowd, covering NSA surveillance, the misunderstood Lochner decision, drone surveillance within the United States, and natural rights. Um, everybody's got a comfortable seat, and I can go on for a while. <laughs> so, um, this morning, I get, I get up this morning, I can't find my cell phone anywhere, so I asked Harry Reid if I could borrow his. And do you think the NSA is going to be surprised to see Harry Reid at the Cato Institute? <laughs> the president was at a um, junior high the other day, and he said, you know, he's always promising something. He said, I promise you free high-speed internet. And so one of the, it was sort of an awkward moment. One of the kids raised his hand and says, why, so you can read our email faster? <laughs> I have to admit, none of those jokes are really mine. Actually, the cell phone one was mine. The other ones I steal from Jimmy Kimmel or Jimmy Fallon. I, I give my kids $10 for good jokes. So uh, my one son the other day sent me a YouTube, and I think kids only get all, they don't watch Fox News, CNN, they watch YouTube. And so he sent me a YouTube of Jimmy Kimmel on the street, and he, Jimmy Kimmel's saying, so the first person that comes up, well, ma'am, uh, you know the president has pardoned the sequester and sent it to Portugal. And the woman's like, well, you know he's such a good man, and, and he wouldn't send it to Portugal if they didn't deserve it. And so he, he went through a few people, and they'd all say the same thing, had no clue what a sequester was. So then he came up to this one woman, and he said, Let, let's make this a man, because I don't want to make this all about women. Let's say he came up to this man, and he, he said, well, you've, you've heard North Korea's rattling their sabers and threatening to launch weapons and threatening to attack the United States. And so you heard the president has sent the sequester, he's pardoned it, and sent it to North Korea. And the man's like, damn right, they deserve it. <laughs> So if you want to have, uh, you know, you want to participate in politics, you want to have an honest election, first you have to inform the electorate. So we're glad to have Cato trying to help us inform the electorate. It's a, uh, an uphill battle sometimes. Uh, you know, we worry about whether or not, you know, our government will treat people fairly. And I think that's one of the things that's really come home with some of these scandals. Now, um, this morning at lunch, they, they showed us a clip of Leno, and Leno was saying, yeah, the president's complaining that everybody's talking about, talking about these phony scandals. He wants to pivot. He wants everybody to talk about the phony economic recovery. <laughs> but the thing that resonates, I think, about the scandals, particularly the IRS scandal, is nobody really wants to think that if you lose the election or if you're a contributor here to a particular candidate, that if your candidate loses, that a $4 trillion government's going to come after you. And I don't think it matters whether you're Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Independent, what you are. You really just don't think that the full force of government should be directed against individuals. So there was a woman in uh, Richmond, Texas, and her name's uh, Catherine Engelbrecht. Well, she got visited by the FBI. Then she got audited personally by the IRS. Then her business got audited by the IRS. Then she was visited by the ATF. I don't know why she has a gun license, but she doesn't sell guns, but she still got visited by the ATF. She got visited by OSHA. She had like 20 visits with uh, federal officials. And uh, 
What was her crime? What were they investigating? I mean, the FBI is grilling this woman. Her crime was she set up a tea party. But you know what her tea party wanted to do? This is outrageous. She didn't want, she wanted to get dead people off the rolls. She didn't think dead people should vote. And so the FBI comes and talks to this woman. It's like, well, shouldn't they be talking to the dead people that are voting or the people that are having dead people instead of this woman who wants to get dead people off the rolls? And, and you say to yourself, you say, well, certainly this can't really be a big problem. Dead people couldn't vote or receive benefits, could they? In the last five years, dead people have received over $500 million in benefits. I'm not making this up. This comes from an audit of the government. So they caught one guy. One guy received his dad's Social Security check from 1971 to 2008. You know how they caught him? He died. <laughs> so there are a few things I think maybe we ought to agree. If we're going to have some bipartisanship, couldn't we at least get together and say maybe dead people shouldn't vote or get welfare? You would think. Anybody remember the show? What was the show? Um, who, want, uh, who wants to be a millionaire? You ask these questions. Isn't that the one where you could poll the audience? All right, this is your chance. We're going to poll the audience. How many people believe that you have a right, and we'll make even more specific, a constitutional right to privacy? How many people? Uh, how many people think you don't? Okay. It's actually a more important question than you think, because I say it all the time. I say we've got a right to privacy, but there is some disagreement. And some of the disagreements between maybe a little more conservative libertarians and a little more libertarian libertarians, I'm not sure how you make the division, but the, 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 the thing is, is that there is no listed right to privacy. So there was, there was this debate as the court cases went along on whether or not it has to be listed in there to be protected. So there's a case, and this is a case that President Obama hates. It's called Lochner from like 1905, and it's about a bunch of uh, bakers and um, their employees. And their employees, uh, they wanted the government to mandate that they could only work 40 hours a week or 50 hours a week or maybe 200 hours back then. I mean, but anyway, they wanted some limits on it, went to the court, and the court rules 5-4 that because it wasn't something directed towards their health, the government couldn't get involved with a contract, that there was some kind of economic freedom to contract that's not in the Constitution. In fact, the right to property is really not in the Constitution. You could argue it's in the Fifth Amendment, but it's not so explicit that you have a right to property. But the question is, do you have a right to contract, to make contracts? And in Lochner, it's a five to four decision saying you do. And really, it's an interesting case because I've asked my colleagues, and since they're not here, we can sort of characterize their position. Mike Lee and Ted Cruz and I do a lot together and we're very close on a lot of issues, but I've asked them, how would you, vote? this is really important to me, how would they vote in the 1905 Lochner case? And so they're both no votes. I'm a yes vote. The yes vote was basically saying to a state legislature that a state legislature or a majority body a democratic body can't take away certain rights, that certain rights are really yours. They're either from your creator, some of them are listed in the Constitution, but some of them are just yours by fact of your nature or by fact of the fact that they're what some would call un unenumerated rights. And to me, it's when, when Madison looked at the government and he said, there are certain limited enumerated powers, they're few and defined, I think rights are sort of the opposite, that your rights are many, unlimited, and really undefined. And that's sort of the Ninth and Tenth Amendment. It says not all the rights were listed, they're, they're, but they're not to be disparaged. They're left to the states and the people, but they aren't all listed. Now, why is this important? 
it's important a little bit because we get to other trickier cases. Griswold is a case in the 60s where Connecticut has a law saying you can't uh, buy birth control. It's illegal to buy birth control. And you may recall, you said, what the, what the hell is he talking about? Why are we talking about these obscure cases? This came up in the presidential debates last year. George Stephanopoulos asked this question about Griswold and everybody's going, what? What the hell was he talking about? He gave like a two minute question on Griswold. Nobody really knew what he was talking about. And then about a year later, Sandra, Sandra Fluke comes forward. And for a year, we talk about Sandra Fluke, and there's ads in every battleground state about birth control, accusing Republicans of not believing you can buy birth control, which has to do with the Griswold case. And then it turns out that the president has ads in all of these, all of these states. They plan this stuff. They're smart and they're evil, <laughs> but they're very smart. They planned this birth control thing all the way back to whichever reporter or whichever Obama aide called George Stephanopoulos up and said, ask a question about Griswold. We're going to say Republicans don't believe in birth control. But going back to this whole idea, to me, it's an important idea because when kids come to me and I have five minutes with them on the Capitol steps, I don't care what age they are or adults, I try to have one discussion. Are we a democracy or a republic? A democracy or a constitutional republic? I had this question with a famous uh, neocon who's on the news all the time last night at one of the television stations here locally. He says, what does it matter? And I said, well, because Wilson wanted to make the world safe for democracy. You guys wanted to make the Middle East safe for democracy. You're everywhere overturning governments. The Arab Spring happens and you get a democracy and now you're not happy. Maybe you should be a little more specific that it's not democracy you're in love with. We need to be in love with constitutional republics that are restrained, that guarantee certain rights. If you're just for democracy, you know, now they're complaining, the president's saying, well, it's a democracy, but they're, they're, they're acting like authoritarians. Well, yeah, they are, but that's the whole point. Democracy isn't the end answer. Democracy is not where we're fighting for. What we should be fighting for is for a constitutional republic, for preservation of rights. Certain rights can't be taken away by a majority. Why is this important? From the Lochner case in 1905, about 10 years later, there's a case called Buchanan v. Worley. It overturns the Jim Crow laws, the housing segregation laws in Louisville. And it's important because a majority, Democrats, by the way, which everybody should keep pointing out, the Jim Crow laws were passed by Democrats, all Democrats. In my state, the Democrats voted against the 13th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment, and then they came along and instituted all of the Jim Crow laws. But we overturned it, and we overturned it based on Lochner saying that a majority can't take away this right to contract. But it was based on the right to contract. And they said, yes, if a white man wants to sell to a black man or vice versa, that's a contract. You can't inhibit this contract. So it is important to talk about it because you think about it. If you believe in majority rule, absolute majority rule, 51% of the people could come and say, we believe we ought to have slavery. Or 51% of the people could say, why don't we put all the Japanese people in camps? So oh, that's right, we did do that, didn't we? But that was a mistake. And that was a mistake because we forgot who we were. We thought we were a democracy instead of a republic. In a republic where you have things that are your rights, they can't be taken away by majority rule. They can't be, and it's much more difficult to change our constitution. You could ultimately try to take away some rights. Some people would argue you can't even do it through super majorities, that you should be allowed to take away rights. But I think these are important questions because we're not a democracy, we're a republic. And most school kids and most people out there don't know what we are. And that's what we are, we're a republic, and it makes a difference. As we look and we move forward and we decide where we're going to go, we have to know who we are.
And these debates over whether a republic, whether we have a right to privacy, all of these things make a difference. And I truly think that you do have a right to privacy. I think there's a lot of court cases that are going to have to be reexamined. A lot of court cases have been going the wrong direction for a long time. I'll give you two examples. One is on third-party records. Once I buy something at Visa and it's at the Visa company or at my bank and they have my records, they say, you don't have any expectation of privacy. They're now held by a third party. They're no longer your records. Even if I signed a contract with my bank or I signed a contract with a visa company, they say, no, they're not really your records. The Fourth Amendment, and this is what they say, doesn't apply at all. So when we make the argument that the NSA has overreached and they're writing warrants to get billions of phone records, their argument really is that the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply at all. So you have to realize kind of where we are, and they may be correct with regard to precedent. There's a Maryland v. Smith and a Miller versus the U.S. in the 70s, and it was decided that way. It was decided that you don't get that expectation of privacy. I think we have a chance to revisit those because technology has changed to such extent. Our whole life is digitalized. I tell people, if you have my visa record, you can tell if I drink, how much I drink, if I see a psychiatrist, not yet. If I smoke, if I gamble, whether I read Reason Magazine, yes. So you can tell a lot about a person by looking at their visa records. Should you really have to get a warrant and have probable cause to look at someone's visa record? Absolutely. But your life has become more digitalized than it ever was. So much of your information is out there that we need a right to privacy. These cases need to be reexamined. The second case I'll tell you that has to be relooked at is open spaces. The courts made a decision a while back that if you can just fly over places and it's outside and anybody can see it, you have no expectation of privacy and the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply. So they fly over cornfields and they see marijuana and they say, we don't need a warrant to fly over the cornfield. That's sort of debatable. But think of what that sort of doctrine has morphed into now. We now have drones that can fly at 50,000 feet. Or we have drones that are this big that can be flying outside the window or your bedroom window. And we literally have drones that can fly down your chimney into your house and monitor every activity you're doing in your house. At least I think we do. They won't let me in on those hearings, but <laughs> sounds good anyway. Now, I think they may have. A, and, and, you know, I'm not against technology, but we should you should have to use warrants to get these things. So I wrote a letter. I held up the FBI and I ended up being the only vote against the FBI director, but mainly because the letter, he, he did respond to me. I asked him, are you arming drones? He said, no. I said, are you using drones? He said, yes. And I think it's classified. I can't tell you exactly how many times, which is really stupid to classify numbers like that. But I said, are you getting warrants? And he said, when we need to, when there's an expectation of privacy. And I said, but, but we haven't used any yet. So they've been using them, they haven't got any warrants, but they don't see really a need to get a warrant. So I asked him another question last week. I said, well, what does that mean? When do you have an expectation of privacy where you would foresee that you would need to get a warrant? And so he sent back a whole bunch of cases, and I don't think they're lying to me. I think the cases have gone the wrong way. The cases basically say that manned surveillance, we've never had a case with unmanned surveillance, but that manned surveillance doesn't, Fourth Amendment doesn't apply. So we've made some mistakes, but we've made these mistakes when we're talking about helicopters. And you might know if a helicopter is buzzing over your house when you're swimming or eating or drinking a beer or having friends over. But now they can fly at 50,000 feet 
and they can tell who's at your house, what you're doing. I mean, it really is none of their business. And so these things need to be revisited. Third-party records, open spaces. Now, there was some hope for us. The Jones case from about a year ago was about GPS tags. And they said to the police, you can't simply GPS tag someone's car and then just monitor their activity for months and months and wait until they break the law. My goodness, if, I, if they could see all of the, the speeding episodes that I've had in my life. See, I've only been caught like one out of a hundred times. Can you imagine if they caught you every time you were speeding? But people don't want to live in that kind of surveillance state. And we now, the technology has gotten there. I always tell people when I read 1984, it bothered me, but it didn't really sink in that I was like, this was something that could happen to me because it's like the technology. When I was a kid, imagining two-way televisions in everybody's you know, room and watching their every movement in a police state, I couldn't imagine it because we didn't have the technology. We do have that technology now. So I think we have to be concerned. Whether you think it's in the Constitution or not, Honest people can disagree. I mean, Mike Lee and Ted Cruz, and I will characterize them because they're not here and they can't defend themselves, I think are a little bit different than me. And they're not really wrong or bad. They just have a little different impression of this. I think it's easier to believe in the right to privacy and believe that Griswold was rightly decided. People can have mixed feelings about the next step. A lot of people don't like Griswold because it led to Roe v. Wade. I'm, you know, I'm different than some libertarians. I am pro-life. But what I will say is, is that at least up to Griswold, I think a lot of us can agree because there are other considerations with Roe. But at least with Griswold, I think we should be able to agree that there are unenumerated rights and those rights should be protected, whether they're natural or whether they come from your creator. These battles will continue to be fought out. I think they're important battles because, well, I don't know, there's this governor who's been giving me a hard time the last couple of days. And he thinks he thinks these are just esoteric and that they really don't, they aren't important because he just wants to catch terrorism, catch terrorists. The thing is, is that if we give up on sort of the rights that we have in order to catch terrorists, are we losing the separation between who we are and who they are? I met a Boston policeman a couple months ago, and he was there when the explosions happened. He rushed to the scene, applied tourniquets, and it was horrific. He limbs were strewn everywhere, body parts, people were dying. It was like a war zone. And his, his reaction was the horror of the scene. And then he was part of the manhunt. And his reaction was hatred and venge, vengefulness for people who would believe that killing women and children and innocent civilians is somehow going to advance your religious ideology or advance your political ideology. There's no excuse for that. No civilized person can believe that that's a good thing to blow up you know, innocent, innocent bystanders. And so when he caught them or he was part of catching them, one of them was shot. He said he didn't have a problem participating in that. That's the way it is. People are running, they're shooting at you, they will get shot. But he said after the second one was caught, he's been wounded, but he's finally caught and disarmed. He said the difference between us and them is that we didn't drag him through the streets and beat him to death with, with tire irons. We're different than they are. We believe in a right to a trial by jury, no matter how despicable you are. And people like on the other side want to say, I don't care about terrorists and that I'm soft on terrorists. I'll pull the switch on that boy after you convict him. I really have no, no, I have no sympathy for these people. But the thing is, is I do believe in a right to trial by jury. And I think we lose what we stand for if we don't actually preserve the very things that I think we're fighting for. 
We have a young man in our town that my wife and I helped, and Greg helped and others, to build a house for him. He lost both legs and an arm. And when you ask him what he's fighting for, he says, I am fighting for the Bill of Rights, and I understand that. No, we should have right to trial by jury. That's, that's what these young men and women are fighting, believe that they're fighting for. They believe that's what freedom is. That's what we stand for. So I think we can't give up on them, that it's not esoteric and that it's not unimportant. From a practical point of view, I would say that it's also how we grow the party. The young people are here. If you ask them, they're all libertarians, so they do care about taxes and regulation. But a lot of young people don't care about, they don't have any money, they don't have a business. The people here who, who have been successful, you care about taxes and regulation, all the standard Republican stuff. But if you want to appeal to young people, talk about their rights, talk about their right to privacy, talk about the internet, talk about their phone, talk about the things you want to preserve. If you want to expand our party where African Americans will listen to us again, or Japanese Americans, or Jewish Americans, Talk to them and relate to them about their history, where government has abused their rights. I think they will come to us if they see us as the party that defends against things like indefinite detention. The president signed a year ago that an American citizen can be arrested without charge and sent to Guantanamo Bay for the rest of your life without a trial. Now, he said he's a good man and he won't do it. The thing is, is I don't care how good he is, and maybe the next guy does it. It should no, no person should ever sign a law like that into being. But I think if you relate that to Japanese Americans who were detained in the war, African Americans who were often arrested willy-nilly with or without trial, punished, or you relate that to people who are minorities of opinion, like you know the, the guy Richard Jewell who was at that bombing, everybody picked him up, they wanted to string him up. They, if he would have been black in 1920, he'd have been dead 10 minutes ago. But it turned out he wasn't guilty. It was a wrong guy. That's why we have this. So I think if we could relate on these ideas of justice, not let Democrats co-opt ideas of justice, if we could relate on the ideas of justice, I think we could transform and grow our party like it's, I guess it's in a Republican fashion, my party, like, uh, like never before. And I think we could end up winning elections. And so I think the party does need a libertarian infusion. And I think we also need to have a happy face. I tell people, there's a painter by the name of Robert Henrym, and he wrote to young painters, he said, paint like a man coming over the hill singing. And I love the image of that. And uh, my wife tells me never to sing, but I think of the Von Trapp family. <laughs> the hills are alive. <laughs> but it's such a happy sort of, you know, paint like a man coming over the hill singing. So I think to my party, to those who want to advance limited government and less party, I think we need to proclaim our message like a man coming over a hill singing. Thank you very much. Rand Paul is a junior senator from Kentucky. He spoke at Cato University last night. You can learn more about Cato U at our website, cato.org.